Section 24 of The Obscure Night of the Soul by St. John of the Cross. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book 2, Chapter 9. How it is that this night enlightens the mind while it brings darkness over it. It remains for me now to explain that this blessed night, though it obscures the mind, does so only to enlighten it, and though it humbles it and makes it miserable, does so only for the purpose of exalting and setting it free. And though it impoverishes and empties it of all it holds, it does so only to enable it to reach forward divinely to the possession and fruition of all things, both of heaven and earth, in perfect liberty of spirit. As the primary elements which enter into the composition of all natural substances have no color, taste, or smell peculiar to themselves, so that they shall combine with all colors, all tastes, and all smell, so the mind must be pure, simple, and detached from all natural affections, actual and habitual, in order that it may freely participate in the largeness of spirit of the divine wisdom, whereby, by reason of its pureness, it tastes of the sweetness of all things in a certain preeminent way. And without this purgation, it is altogether impossible to taste of the abundance of these spiritual delights. For one single affection remaining in the soul, to which the mind may cling either habitually or actually, is sufficient to prevent all perception and all communication of the interior sweetness of the spirit of love, which contains within itself all sweetness supremely. As the children of Israel, merely on account of that single affection or remembrance which they retained of the flesh-pots of Egypt, could not taste the delicious bread of angels, the manna in the desert, which had the sweetness of every taste, and turned to what every man liked, so the mind which still clings actually or habitually to any one affection or particular mode of apprehending cannot taste the sweetness of the spirit of liberty, according to the desire of the will. The reason is this. The affections, feelings, and apprehensions of the perfect spirit, being of so high an order and specially divine, are of another and different kind than those which are natural, and in order to be actually and habitually enjoyed, require the annihilation of the latter. It is therefore expedient and necessary, if the soul is to advance to these heights, that the obscure night of contemplation should annihilate it first, and destroy it in all its meanness, changing it into darkness, aridities, loneliness, and emptiness. For the light that is given it is a certain divine light of the highest nature, surpassing all natural light, and not cognizable by the natural intellect. If the intellect is to be united with that light, and become divinely transformed in the state of perfection, it must, first of all, be purified and annihilated as to its natural light, which must be brought actually into darkness by means of obscure contemplation. This obscurity must continue so long as it is necessary to destroy the habit, long ago contracted, of understanding things in a human way, and until the divine enlightening shall have taken its place. And inasmuch as the power of understanding, previously exerted, was natural, the darkness now endured is profound, awful, and most afflictive, because it reaches to, and is felt in, the innermost depths of the spirit. And inasmuch as the affection of love, communicated in the divine union, is divine, and therefore most spiritual, subtle, 
delicate and most interior, surpassing all natural sense and affection, the imperfectness of the will and every desire of the same, it is necessary for the fruition, in the union of love, of this divine affection and most exquisite delight, that the will should be first purified and annihilated, as to all its affections and feelings, left in darkness and distress, proportional to the intensity of the habit of natural affections it had acquired, in respect both of human and divine things. And this must be done in order that the will, in the fire of obscure contemplation, wasted, withered, and deprived of all selfishness, like the liver of the fish on the burning coals, may acquire a pure and simple disposition, a purified and sound taste, so as to feel those sublime and wonderful touches of divine love whenever it shall be divinely transformed, and wherein all its former contrarieties, actual and habitual, shall be expelled. Moreover, in order to attain to the divine union, for which obscure contemplation disposes it, the soul must be endowed and replenished with a certain glorious magnificence in the divine communication, which includes innumerable blessings and joys, surpassing all the abundance which the soul can naturally possess. So speak the prophet Isaiah and St. Paul. Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither hath it entered into the heart of man what things God hath prepared for them that love him. It is necessary for it that it should be first brought into a state of emptiness and spiritual poverty, detached from all help and consolation, in all the things of heaven and earth, that being thus empty it may be really poor in spirit and divested of the old man, and may live that new and blessed life to which it attains in this obscure contemplation, which is the state of union with God. And because the soul is to attain to a certain sense, to a certain divine knowledge, most generous and full of sweetness, of all human and divine things which do not fall within the common sense and natural perceptions of the soul, it views them with different eyes now, for the light and grace of the Holy Ghost differ from those of sense, the divine from the human. It is necessary that the mind should be brought low, and inured to hardships in all that relates to natural and common sense. It must suffer hardships and afflictions in the purgative contemplation, and the memory must become a stranger to all pleasing and peaceful notions, with a most interior sense and feeling of being a stranger and a pilgrim here, so that all things shall seem strange to it, and other than they were wont to seem. It must suffer hardships and afflictions in the purgative contemplation, and the memory must become a stranger to all pleasing and peaceful notions, with a most interior sense and feeling of being a stranger and a pilgrim here, so that all things shall seem strange to it, and other than they were wont to seem. For this night is drawing the mind away from its ordinary and common sense of things, and attracts it toward the divine sense, which is a stranger and an alien to all human ways so much so that the soul seems to be carried out of itself. At other times it looks upon itself as if under the influence of some spell, and is amazed at all that is around it, all that it hears and sees, which seem to it to be most strange, though in reality always the same. The sources of this feeling are that the soul has become a stranger to the ordinary sense of things, in order that being brought to nothing therein it might be formed divinely anew. Now this belongs more to the next life than to this. The soul suffers these afflictive purgations of the spirit that it may be born again to the life of the spirit through the divine influence, 
and in these pangs brings forth the spirit of salvation, fulfilling the words of the prophet, So are we become in thy presence, O Lord. We have conceived, and been as it were in labor, and brought forth the spirit of salvation. Moreover, as the night of contemplation disposes the soul for that tranquility and interior peace, which is so full of delight, as in the words of the Scripture, to surpass all understanding, it is necessary that the former peace of the soul, which, because involved in so many imperfections, was no peace, though it seemed to be a twofold peace, namely of sense and spirit, should first of all be purified, and the soul disturbed and repelled from that imperfect peace, as Jeremiah felt and lamented in the words cited before, to express the trials of the night that is now past, namely, My soul is repelled off from peace. This is a painful unsettling, full of misgivings, imaginations, and interior struggles, to which the soul, at the sight and in the consciousness of its own misery, imagines itself to be lost, and all the goodness to have utterly perished. In this state the mind is pierced by sorrow so profound to occasion spiritual groans and cries. At times it gives audible vent to them, and tears break forth, if there be any strength left, though this relief is but rarely granted. The royal prophet has well described this state, being one who had experience of it, saying, I am afflicted and humbled exceedingly. I roared with the groaning of my heart. This proceeds from great sorrow, for sometimes the sudden and sharp recollection of the miseries that environ the soul produces such pain and suffering that I know not how to describe them otherwise than by the words of Job. As overflowing waters, so is my roaring. For as waters sometimes overflow, drown and fill all places, so this roaring, this sense of pain, occasionally so grows as to overflow the soul and drown it, so fills all its affections and energies with spiritual sorrows as to defy all exaggeration. Such is the work wrought in this night that hideth the hopes of day. It was in reference to it that Job said, In the night my mouth is pierced with sorrows, and they that feed upon me do not sleep. The mouth is the will, pierced by these sorrows which ceases not to tear the soul. Neither do they sleep, for the doubts and misgivings which harass it give it no rest. This warfare and combat are deep, because the peace hoped for is most deep. The spiritual sorrow is most interior, refined and pure, because the love to be enjoyed is most interior and pure. The more interior and perfect the work, the more interior, perfect, and pure must be the labor that produces it, and the stronger the building, the deeper the foundation. My soul fadeth within myself, saith Job, and the days of affliction possess me. So in the same way, because the soul has to attain to the enjoyment and possession, in the state of perfection to which it journeys in this purgative night, of innumerable blessings, gifts, and virtues, both in the substance of the soul and in the powers thereof, it is necessary for it that it should consider and feel itself deprived of them all, and regard them as so far beyond its reach as to be persuaded that it never can attain to them, and that all goodness is perished from it. This is the meaning of those words of the prophet, I have forgotten good things. Let us see why it is that the light of contemplation so sweet and lovely to the soul that nothing is more desirable, for it is that whereby the divine union takes place, and whereby the soul in the state of perfection finds all the good it desires, 
produces these painful beginnings and awful results? The answer is easy, and is already given in part. This is not the effect of contemplation and the divine inflowing, from which comes sweetness rather than pain. The cause is in our imperfection and weakness, and in the dispositions of our souls, which is not fit for the reception of that sweetness. And so, when the divine light shines in upon the soul, it makes it suffer in the way described. End of section 24